Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. So it's good to be back again with you, and um, I'm going to read through again what I've written, and we'll probably have time to talk afterwards, but this is a session on the theme of friendship in Augustine, and I think this is a good thing to address as guys, because if you're anything like me, you know that your wife has more friends than you do. (laughs) Isn't that true? Um, men um, Men don't text with men from dawn to dusk. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> your, your wives are probably too busy to do that. But I have seen women who do that with other women. Um, and I, I don't know of any men that do that <laughs> with other men, right? And we don't get on the phone for hour-long conversations with other guys generally, right? You might be the exception to that rule. And we have our Clint Eastwood and Rambo and um, uh, those kinds of movies of these sort of loners, John Wayne, you know, the classic type, Ernest Hemingway, and they have their Jane Austen novels. So, enough said. Um, Women do friendship, I think, better than men do. I don't know why that is, Um, but it always uh, intrigued me that my dad, who was a church planner in Austria for over 30 years, um, had lots of people that he impacted for Christ, had lots of networks and lots of people that he would have considered Friends, but um, my dad really never had a close friend uh, growing up. And um, I can say that for myself, and it it could be that this is true for you too, that um, as Michael said, we work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. There's not a lot of time for building friendships. Um, And I don't know why guys don't do this, but would you agree that it's a problem for us? And it's something we need to address in the church And this is, I think, one of the great themes. It's a hidden theme of Augustine's Confessions. You have to pull it out because he doesn't doesn't really make it into a big fanfare, this theme of friendship, but it's in every single book. So I'm going to read some thoughts about uh, the theme of friendship. We're going to look at some passages together. Do you all have a handout of quotes in front of you? Is anyone lacking that here? Um, Make sure you have that. Um, because there's a really long one that we're going to look at together. So if you turn in the handout to session three and have that in front of you, um, we've got four, five quotes there in session three. I'm going to pray. Father, we pray that you would bless this time, that by your spirit you would open up to us the things that you want to teach us uh, through this man's life, through your word, and that you would help us to um, be good friends to others and to seek out friendships, uh, that we would really be brothers to one another in Christ, that your church, which really needs men to form friendships with other men, would be built up and strengthened through the example of our brother Augustine and his love for people. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a social media age, so people are preoccupied with other people's lives like never before. But strangely, though your Facebook account may say that you have 300 friends, the sad fact is that maybe not one of those so-called friends might be a true friend in the sense that Augustine uses the word. 
The art of friendship has fallen on hard times. There are so many things that make friendship today so confusing to navigate. The mediation of screens, the loss of all the old books of etiquette, and the constant redefining of social cues, the mainstreaming of sexual perversion and gender confusion, the narcissistic worship of the self, and the general toxic viciousness of our age that has turned the nightly news shows into an open sewer of gossip and accusation. I'm just thinking about the nightly news shows of the last two weeks. Clearly, this is not an easy time to develop solid, slow-growing, lasting friendships. I'm going to address this talk specifically to us as men, because the women have their separate session. Brothers, you and I need a few good friends. We need faithful men who will get to know the real sinner behind the LinkedIn profile, who encourage us when we're down, have courage to rebuke us when we sin, who counsel us when we face heavy decisions, and are generally in it for the long haul. Do you have such a friend? When you first read the Confessions, you may not at first think that it's a book about friendship. But Peter Brown, Augustine's major biographer, points out that from, the, from his earliest youth, Augustine is never alone. He's always deeply involved in the lives of other people. This is interesting because the Confessions is written as a long monologue in which a man talks to God. We're overhearing one side of an intensely private conversation, and we're already, we've already said that this is the first book in all of Western literature that gives us a front-row seat to the inner development of a human soul from childhood to maturity. So we get this amazing inside look at a unique individual. But we shouldn't miss that in every book of the Confessions, Augustine talks to God not just about himself, but about his world. And the most important part of his world is his friends. When we look at the book more closely, we see that friendship is one of its major themes. We should note here, as C.S. Lewis says in The Four Loves, that the art of friendship was held in much higher regard in the ancient world than it is today. Lewis writes, To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all the loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, by comparison, ignores it. Augustine, as a teacher of Roman literature, was well-versed in Cicero's On Friendship, The friendship between two men was not freighted by suspicion, as it can be today. It's amazing that Lewis, writing almost 60 years ago, would have to say say that it has actually become necessary in our time to rebut the theory that every firm and serious friendship is really homosexual. He wrote that 60 years ago. In fact, it was seen as the most disinterested of all the loves, the least subject to jealousy. Friends welcome other friends into the circle of friendship. The more, the merrier. As Lewis says, lovers are normally face-to-face absorbed in each other. Friends are side-by-side absorbed in some common interest. So if you look at quote number one, just reading this passage from uh, The Four Loves, and this is one of the best parts, I think, of that book. Um, Lewis was a member of the Inklings, so he knew something about male bonding. Um, And if you read any of the history of the Inklings, uh, there's something, I think, that we 
in a good way, could really envy about a group of men coming together and discussing things like they did. There, there were deep friendships forged there. In some ways, Lewis writes, this is quote one, in some ways, nothing is less like a friendship than a love affair. Lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other. Friends side-by-side, absorbed in some common interest. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of the loves. Great quote, isn't it? Especially that line, there's something in me that another person has to draw out, right? And if you know that, if, if you have friends that do that for you, you know what a blessing that is, right? So <clears throat> the typical expression of opening a friendship, Lewis says, is what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Like who likes comic books from the 1950s, you know, or whatever it is, you know. Friendship is usually based on some common passion for something, right? Um, Building Legos. Looking at my son, Jacob. (laughs) Friends can be free to enjoy the companionship of another friend with no other motive or agenda clouding the friendship. In fact, when you read biographies of C.S. Lewis, it seems that one of Lewis's greatest gifts was the gift of his friendship. Without it, we would probably not have Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So if you read any biography of of Tolkien or of the Inklings, you, you know that Tolkien had writer's block with the Lord of the Rings for decades. And the one who really encouraged him to finish that book was his friend, C.S. Lewis. And that's pretty amazing because Tolkien was not very keen on the Chronicles of Narnia, (laughs) right? So Lewis could have said, yeah, you don't like my book. I don't like yours either. (laughs) But but you know, that shows true friendship, right? That, That Tolkien could dismiss Lewis's writing as allegorical and kind of petty. And Lewis could say, wow, what you're writing in Lord of the Rings is awesome. Keep working on it. And that, that's really amazing. So, you know, eventually Tolkien got it finished. And aren't we glad he did? The greatest book of the 20th century in imaginative fiction would not have happened without the friendship of C.S. Lewis. And that's really an amazing thing. I think maybe well, that was one of Lewis's greatest contributions was simply that he was a generous friend. <clears throat> Augustine seems to have craved the company of other people And we can easily see why others would have been attracted to him. He talks about his friends with deep affection. There's Olypius, his student at Carthage, who traveled with him to Rome and Milan, became a lawyer, was converted and baptized on the same day he was, and also became a bishop of North Africa when they went back. Nebridius came from a wealthy family in Africa and tagged along with Augustine because he loved to think and talk deeply about things. Nebridius helped Augustine escape the snare of superstition. Olypius and Nebridius get their own mini-biographies in Book 6. Even Monica, Augustine's faithful praying mother, whose persistence in following her son all over the Roman Empire would have annoyed many of us, became one of his closest friends. He devotes half of Book 9 to telling Monica's story. His deepest experience of the presence of God was shared in the company of his mother just days before she died, and he writes about her with deep respect as his older sister in Christ. 
That's his mom. And I, we've already talked about his son, Adiodatus, the guy who died as a teenager. He thought of his son as his brother in Christ, and he thought about his mom as his sister in Christ. And that's really amazing, isn't it? And his, so his son, Adiodatus, and his name means gift from God in Latin, died as a teenager, but Augustine admired his gifts of mind and could say humbly that though he was older than his son in years, in grace they were the same age since they were baptized on the same day. The truth is that Augustine's story plays out against the context of friendships. In book two, he doesn't break into the garden alone to steal the pears. He's with a group of friends who egg each other on. As a teacher in Carthage, he's constantly surrounded by students and friends. When he joins the Manichees, he's part of a group. He's walking the streets of Milan with his friends when he passes the happy beggar in book six. He's surprised to find Ambrose reading silently to himself in a library rather than being overheard by others. He listens to friends tell stories about their friends' conversions, which makes him burn to imitate them in Book 8. He breaks away from Olypius to do business with God under the fig tree in Book 8, but Olypius is right there to share in the joy of his new birth. He wants to retire from the stress of teaching in Book 9 to read philosophy and write, And his wealthy friend, Vericundus, gives him the use of his summer house on Lake Como on the southern slopes of the Alps. But he doesn't go to that restful place alone, as we might do, or I should say, as I might do. (laughs) He goes in the company of his mother, his son, Olypius, and a few others. In fact, this is the realization of something he and his friends had always dreamed about. And look at quote number two. In book six, he wrote, A group of my friends who detested the bustle and worry of life had all but decided to live a life of peace away from the crowd. The plan was to arrange this life of leisure by pooling our possessions and using such money as we had between us to create a common fund. In the spirit of sincere friendship, none of us would claim this or that as his own, but all would be thrown together and the whole would belong to each and all. We thought there might be about 10 members of the community. So he and his guy friends uh, decided they were going to have a little bit of a commune, maybe according to Acts chapter 2 or something, right, and have all the possessions and stuff in common. Um, But those of you who've read the Confessions, you know the line that comes quickly after this. Can I read it to you? He says, I was hoping to get married, and some of the others already had wives. Uh Uh-oh. And when we began to ask ourselves whether the, wom- the women would agree to the plan. <laughs> all, all our carefully made arrangements collapsed and broke in pieces <laughs> in our hands and were discarded. <laughs> collapsed and broken pieces and were discarded. But amazingly, God gave him the gift of actually realizing this a little bit um, with his mom, too. And right after he gave up his teaching post, his chair of lies, as he called it, um, of rhetoric, after he became a believer, he went to that retreat on the lake with the Alps in view in northern Italy, beautiful place. And he stayed there for about six or seven months. He wrote some of the most interesting books that he ever wrote, these kind of platonic dialogues. And in these dialogues that he wrote, he's talking to his, like, 14- or 15-year-old son about 
philosophical things as if his son is like a peer of his. It's really pretty amazing. Uh, that's where you get like his, his work, the soliloquies from that time. He wouldn't write anything like that later. Um, but then he came back to Milan at Easter time. He got, see, he was converted in August, so he went to that place on the lake until like March, came back to Milan. And in Milan, they did all the baptisms at Easter, right? The symbolism of dying with Christ and being resurrected. So he was uh, baptized on Easter day along with Olypius and along with his son. And then, um, and then Monica um, died shortly after that, and then he went back to North Africa. So he never had that period again in his life, but it must have been some sweet months of fellowship with friends. In the end, Augustine never did get married, but neither did he ever really have a solitary life. When he tried to retreat into seclusion and scholarship in North Africa, and that was his goal, to go back to North Africa and to be like uh, a Christian scholar and to live in kind of a semi-monastic community with other brothers. He was pretty quickly pressed into pastoral leadership of the church in Hippo. In this way, he was a lot like John Calvin. God did not think it would be good for either of these brilliant men to be lonely scholars. They would write lots of books, but these books would be pressed out of their work as shepherds among sheep. And these books are more helpful to us because they smell not of the ivory tower, but of the mange of the sheepfold. In fact, we can say that it is the motive of friendship, uh, friendship for the souls of his brothers that led Augustine to take up his pen just after he became the bishop of the church at Hippo to trace God's work of grace in his life. He wanted to set down his testimony for others so they could see what a great sinner he was and what a great savior God was. That's why he describes his own sins so graphically and why he takes us through all the inner agony of his conversion and why in book 10 he goes on to confess his present struggles. He wants his life to be an open book, literally. The motivation of this excruciating transparency is to glorify God, yes, but it's also the gift of friendship to his readers, including his friendship to us, who read his book now. Just as conversion stories of others were so helpful to him, <clears throat> he wants his own conversion story to be helpful to us. And so here are a couple quotes, and you can look at quote number three. I'm going to give you two quotes first and then quote number three. My soul, tell this to the souls you love. Let them weep in this valley of tears, and so take them with you to God. For if, as you speak, the flame of charity burns in you, it is by his spirit that you tell them this. That's from book four. And from book ten, I wish to act in truth, making my confession both in my heart to you and in this book before the many who will read it. That's the beginning of book ten. And then quote number three in Book 10, Chapter 3. But when others read of those past sins of mine or hear about them, their hearts are stirred so that they no longer lie listless in despair, crying, I cannot. Instead, their hearts are roused by the love of your mercy and the joy of your grace, by which each one of us, weak though he be, is made strong. And that's a beautiful thing, right? He doesn't want Christians to be alone in their sin because Satan wants to isolate people and destroy them. He wants to tell us his sins and say that God could break his chains 
so that none of us can say, I cannot. He wants to say, God can. And that's what a friend does for a friend, right? That's Christian friendship. That is manly Christian friendship, isn't it? We're among the many, the millions by now, who have read this book. And this is how, for over 1,600 years now, Augustine has gone on blessing generations of readers with the generosity of his friendship. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, Books may preach when the author cannot, when the author may not, when the author dares not, yea, and which is more, when the author is not. (laughs) That's from Thomas Brooks's preface in the Puritan paperbacks to his book Heaven on Earth, which is about assurance of salvation. He says that books can preach when the author is long dead. And that's the amazing thing about books. They can go on preaching. And that's why it's so great that pastors in history like Edwards and Calvin and Augustine have written books, right? Because they didn't just preach those 500 sermons to their congregation like Augustine did. He's still preaching. And I was telling Andrew yesterday that this book and Pilgrim's Progress have never, ever gone out of print ever since the printing press was invented over 500 years ago. There's never been a year when people have not wanted to read this book. There must be something special here, right? So we read to know we're not alone. And that's a quote from this movie about C.S. Lewis called Shadowlands. It's a great quote. We read to know we're not alone. And no more so than with a book like this one. Which is why if you haven't read it yet, you really should. Because you'll see when you read it that this is a man just like you. And you're not alone. That if God worked in his life, he can work in yours. Even though every book in the Confessions touches on friendship in some way, Augustine works out his theology of friendship in book four. In that book, Augustine confesses his sinful, youthful attachment to a friend. He made an idol of his friend, so when the friend died, Augustine's world fell apart. His friend had been everything to him, so when he was deprived of that friendship, he was left with nothing. As he reflects on his idolatrous friendship, Augustine works out his great idea of ordered and disordered loves. A disordered love is any created thing or person we place higher than God in our affections. If we place friends in the place of God, the friendship will be destructive. We love people well, and we have healthy friendships when we love them for God's sake. Only God can satisfy our soul's hunger for friendship absolutely and eternally. A life-giving friendship with another human being is friendship in God and for the sake of God. A friendship properly tuned to the great love of God. And here's a quote that I should have put on your sheet, but this is from book four where he says this. If the things of this world delight you, praise God for them, but turn your love away from them and give it to their maker. If your delight is in souls, love them in God, because they too are frail and stand firm only when they cling to him. If they do not, they go their own way and are lost. Love them then in him and draw as many with you to him as you can. So he seems to be saying here, right, that it's not just other Christians that we love in God, but we also love our non-Christian neighbors and friends 
in God and for the sake of God, trying to bring them to God, right? But the whole point is, you guys know, think about your past. Did you have a friendship that you put in the place of God? Was it destructive? Augustine says, all disorderly loves are destructive, and all loves are disorderly if they are not ordered underneath the love of God as the highest thing. And that is one of Augustine's famous ideas, right? Confession shows the heartache that Augustine experienced when he didn't love people this way. For example, when he sought to exploit people to satisfy the itch of his lust, or when he put friends on pedestals where they could easily let him down. If God is at the top of our order of affections, all these things, including our friendships, would fall into their proper place. But when any created thing other than the creator is at the top, everything gets twisted. We see the evil consequences of twisted relationships all around us today, don't we? I mean, our culture is full of them, right? Augustine sees the pressure that friendship exerts on us for good and for evil. When he gets to the end of the pear tree episode in book two, he says that he doesn't think that he would have stolen the pears if he had been there alone. This is a quote there. This was friendship of a most unfriendly sort. For the sake of a laugh, a little sport, I was glad to do harm and anxious to damage another, and that without thought of profit for myself, and all because we were ashamed to hold back when others say, come on, let's do it. So the pear tree episode is the first episode that really shows the negative consequences of bad peer pressure when a lot of young guys get together and say, come on, we can do it. And then people go and do things that they would not do if they were on their own. And that's really instructive, isn't it? Bad peer pressure comes into what always strikes me as one of the most poignant stories about friendship in the Confessions. This is the account of Olypius going to the gladiator shows in Rome. Think about Russell Crowe and gladiator, okay? But that was actually happening in Rome. And they were there in Rome for a year. And the Colosseum was there in Rome, right? And they were still having the gladiator combats, which were basically bloodbaths for entertainment. Olypius had been Augustine's student in Carthage, and I think their friendship was really forged when God used Augustine's word, words in the classroom to turn Olypius away from the wasting disease of his addiction to the games in the amphitheater. But when Olypius went to Rome, a group of friends persuaded him to go back to this bloodlust. At first he refused, but then he went with them, determined to test his moral strength by not looking at the bloody spectacle. Let's pick up the story here, and this is the long quote on quote number four. And this is, I think, one of the most gripping stories in the Confessions and this little story about Olypius right here. When they arrived at the arena, remember, Olypius says to his friends, you can drag me there bodily, but I won't look at it. I will keep my eyes closed the whole time because I'm strong and I can do this. <laughs> you know, let's pick it up here. When they arrived at the arena, the place was seething with the lust for cruelty. 
They found seats as best they could, and Olypia shut his eyes tightly, determined to have nothing to do with these atrocities. If only he had closed his ears as well. For an incident in the fight drew a great roar from the crowd, and this thrilled him so deeply that he could not contain his curiosity. Whatever had caused the uproar, he was confident that if he saw it, he would find it repulsive and remain master of himself. So he opened his eyes, now note this, and his soul was stabbed with a wound more deadly than any which the gladiator whom he was so anxious to see had received in his body. Can I just pause, guys? This is the best line in the book about what pornography does to men. Okay? He fell, and he fell more pitifully than the man whose fall had drawn that roar of excitement from the crowd. The din had pierced his ears and forced him to open his eyes, laying his soul open to receive the wound which struck it down. This was presumption, not courage. The weakness of his soul was in relying upon itself instead of trusting in you. When he saw the blood, it was as though he had drunk a deep draught of savage passion. Instead of turning away, he fixed his eyes upon the scene and drank in all its frenzy, unaware of what he was doing. He reveled in the wickedness of the fighting and was drunk with the fascination of bloodshed. He was no longer the man who had come to the arena, but simply one of the crowd which he had joined, a fit companion for the friends who had brought him. The theme of friendship. Need I say more? He watched and cheered and grew hot with excitement. And when he left the arena, he carried away with him a diseased mind which would leave him no peace until he came back again, no longer simply together with the friends who had first dragged him there, but at their head, leading new sheep to the slaughter. That is the passage that pierces me most in the confessions and I think is one of the most applicable passages to young men today. And as you're training your young men to deal with the Internet, And you know, this is interesting, right? Olypius, when Augustine wrote this, was a bishop of the church in North Africa. That's what he was when he wrote this. When Augustine wrote this, Olypius had become a church leader. And, and he's, he's exposing his friend's sins. Maybe he asked Olypius beforehand if he could do this. And Olypius says, please do it. I don't want people to know. This story has always pierced me, and I think it's one of the best parts to share with young people today who are tempted not by the bloodlust of the Roman gladiator shows, but by no less destructive visual orgies in the realm of virtual reality. In explicit and violent video games and perverted images on the Internet, true friends, Augustine says, warn each other about these minefields and remind each other that, as Jesus said, the eyes are the windows through which the soul looks out. They do not lead sheep to the slaughter. That last line, right? Thankfully, even Olypius repented and received forgiveness, and later he became a pastor of sheep, not a butcher of them. 
But I want to end on a more positive note. One of the sweetest things in the confessions, and I already talked about this yesterday, but I want to talk about it again because it fits with the theme of friendship, is Augustine's account of what he felt when he met the great Bishop Ambrose in Milan. He would eventually be drawn to the truth Ambrose preached, but it wasn't Ambrose's preaching that first attracted him to Christ. And this is quote number five. In Milan, I found your devoted servant, sorry, the Bishop Ambrose, who was known throughout the world as a man whom there was whom there were few to equal in goodness. Unknown to me, it was you who led me to him so that I might knowingly be led by him to you. Just pause there for a second. Augustine believes that God led him from Carthage to Rome to Milan just to meet this man. This man of God received me like a father and as a bishop, told me how glad he was that I'd come, My heart warmed to him, not at first as a teacher of truth, but as a man who showed me kindness. I don't know if there's a sweeter line. There are other sweet lines. But to me personally, on the theme of friendship, that's the sweetest line on friendship in the whole book. Basically, he's amazed that this great pastor, Ambrose, who was famous throughout the world for what, though? What was he famous for? For his what? For his preaching? Look at it. For his what? Yeah, his goodness, it says, right? He was known throughout the world as a man whom there were few to equal in goodness. Isn't that a wonderful thing for a pastor to be known for? Goodness? Kindness? And then notice the simple understated power of this human kindness which in our ranting and raving world and on people's shrill blogs, shrill blogs, it's hard to say, is in such short supply. Ambrose reached out to Augustine in friendship, and no doubt this was a model for Augustine when he too became a bishop to be a friend to others. One of the fruits of that generous spirit in Augustine is that he sat down to write this book for the friends he knew, and for all the friends who were to come.